0: continuing to study through Second Corinthians and we're going to look at chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. We're actually probably just a few weeks from closing our study in Second Corinthians and uh, we'll move on into Galatians after that. Um, As you know, uh, today is one of my favorite holidays of the year. (laughs) It's not really a holiday, but it, it has become one, I think, I mean, there's not many holidays that are pumped up the way Super Bowl is and and you know I just I, I love everything about um, the Super Bowl the the game itself, especially when the Seahawks are in it, although that's really a sore spot. I'm still getting over that loss last year and and all that came with that um, just getting done with my therapy and you know I'm starting to move on from that but um the commercials are great. I mean, everybody looks forward to the commercials, especially the ladies. You know, that's the one sort of caveat that they have to actually get excited about the Super Bowl. Um, the halftime show used to be kind of fun. Now they're just kind of weird. Um, this year, Prince is doing it, and it should be interesting. You know, he's only like 5'4". Um, shorter than me. That may I mean, that makes me feel good. Uh, the food, you got to love the food, you know, um, but the Super Bowl always comes with a lot of hype, uh, a lot of fanfare, you know, press conferences, and of course, boasting. What would the Super Bowl be without boasting? I mean, last year, I think that the boasting on the part of Jeremy Stevens, the tight end for the Seahawks, was a big part of our demise as he was, you know, talking about how he was going to do so many things, he was so great. And that just got the Steelers fired up, you know, um, and the refs didn't help either. But I think Jeremy Stevens, maybe he put the refs against the Seahawks. Maybe that was the problem. Something had either that or they were just all like totally blind. But you um, can tell I'm, I'm still working through this. The The pain is there. Um. But there's a lot of boasting that goes on. You have the, the teams boasting of what they're going to do to each other. Uh, you have players boasting of their abilities, uh, coaches boasting about their players, uh, fans boasting about their teams. And then, of course, you have the companies that are paying millions of dollars for these coveted commercial spots, boasting of their products and services. So the Super Bowl is not without a lot of boasting. And interestingly enough, in our text, Paul feels it necessary to do a little boasting of his own, not because he enjoys boasting. In fact, at the beginning of Chapter 11, he tells us that you would bear with me in a little bit of folly. This is foolishness to him. He doesn't want to do this, but it has become necessary because of the emergence of these false teachers who had turned the people of Corinth away from Paul by basically dragging Paul through the mud and saying that, you know, Paul was inferior to them. And so by doing that, they've also dragged the people away from the simple gospel message. And so Paul feels it necessary not simply to restore his name or his fame, but to restore his reputation there amongst the Corinthians so that they will come back to the simplicity of the gospel. Because if you drag the messenger through the mud, you've also dragged the message through the mud. That's Paul's heart here. And so let's read our text and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what we're going to see. I say again, let no one think of me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are so wise. I love Paul's sarcasm. I mean, he could have written a book on how to be sarcastic. And this is at the very core of what he's doing here. His tongue is firmly planted in his cheek. You know, you put up with fools so glad because gladly because you are so wise. You're so superior in intellect, you Corinthians. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself. If one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Who can say that? In deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, to clarify, that doesn't mean with drugs. It means with rocks. In our culture, you know, you might be saying, hey, I can relate to that. I was stoned once, too. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, lots of perils, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Eratus the King was guarding the city of Damascene with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket, through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And so I want us to talk about three things this morning as we go back and sort of dig into the text. We're going to see Paul's enemies. We're going to see Paul's qualifications. And then we're going to talk about and see Paul's boasting. So Paul's enemies. In fact, he describes them very specifically for us in verses 16 through 21. He describes these false teachers. In fact, he gives us five characteristics of false teachers in general. And so these characteristics This description of false teachers not only applied to these people in Corinth, but it also applies to false teachers today. These characteristics ring true today as much as they did then. Five things about them. First of all, if you look at verse 20, he says, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. That's the first thing that false teachers do. They bring you into bondage. Jesus promised freedom. Jesus, it said, brings freedom. If the son sets you free, you will be free. Indeed, the Bible says Jesus gives us freedom. And yet false teaching brings us into further bondage. It's sort of pseudo liberty. They tell you that they're going to give you, you know, what you need in terms of a relationship with God. But in fact, it just brings you into more bondage, into more shackles and chains, more guilt, more rules, more requirements, more regulations. That's what false teaching does. And it might even say, yeah, Jesus is good. That's what these Judaizers did. They came like those that knock on doors today and and those that propagate false teaching today. They come... In the name of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is good, but there's more than just Jesus. If you really want the whole truth, you've got to follow our teaching. And the Judaizers that Paul is dealing with in Corinth, Jesus was part of their belief system, but they added all these other rules and regulations on top of it. And how many do that today? And I think even as Believers in Jesus, as what might be called evangelical Christians, we are guilty of it as well as we share the gospel with people. It's almost as if we are giving people the impression that they need to kind of clean themselves up before they come to Christ. You know, it's not as prevalent today, but you know, you've all heard stories about people coming into church and, and being told they need to go get their hair cut. But what kinds of things are happening today in in the church? Maybe, you know, when when people come in who are pregnant out of wedlock, maybe they get judged. Uh, Maybe if people in a lifestyle that we wouldn't agree with come in through the doors, we automatically build walls up between them instead of bringing them to Christ and sharing the love of Christ. And so we can be guilty of putting people under further bondage as well. What we need to tell people, you guys, is just come to Jesus. He will clean you up. Just like when you come home from work, those of you that maybe get dirty in your job, you don't go to the sink and you know, clean yourself up a little bit before you get into the shower. You just get into the shower. You don't have to take a bath before the bath. And see, Jesus is like a shower. He showers His grace upon us. And we don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to go through a bunch of hoops before we get to Jesus. We just come to Him. And time and again, you guys, when you read the Gospels, you see people just coming to Jesus, like the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, fighting through the crowds, She knew if she could just get to Jesus, she had been through all of the other avenues that were supposed to bring her hope. All the doctors, she'd spent all her money. She had gone probably through all the old wives tales. You know, hey, if you um, eat a little bit of ginger on the third Thursday of the month, you know, or whatever, all these weird things that people tell you to do. She probably had tried all those things and none of it had worked. And now she knew. This was her last option. And she needed to get to Jesus. And what's our tendency? Our tendency is to say, well, you need to do this and this and and come here and do that as well. She knew I just need Jesus's touch. The man with the withered hand there in the synagogue in Capernaum. He didn't know it, but he had come to the synagogue that day and he was going to be touched by Jesus. Now. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were there and they were trying to trap Jesus. They were hoping that He would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they could further indict Him as a false teacher. And there He is. And Jesus tells him, Stand up. Come forward. Stretch out your hand. All He needed to do was come to Jesus. And time and again, you see that in the Gospels. Men and women. Lepers tax collectors, prostitutes coming to Jesus. Now the religious leaders, what would they do? They would stand around and say, how can these people think that they're going to be forgiven? How can Jesus associate with such sinners? And Jesus would say, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. What does He mean by that? What he meant by that is, I didn't come for those that think they're righteous. I came for those who understand their depravity, who understand that they're bankrupt. That's why the Bible says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the place that God can begin to work when you're poor in spirit. When you understand that you have nothing to offer God. But see, religion and false teaching, it basically tells you you do have something to offer God. It tells you that God wants this from you and God wants that from you and God expects this. And if you'll do these things, then God will accept you. And God says, no, your good works are like filthy rags. Good works are a response. They're a result. They're the byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. That's why James says that faith without works is dead. But the works don't precede faith. They're a result of faith. It's not like God is sitting there saying, oh, okay, now you've got some works. Now I'll give you salvation. No, the salvation comes first. Then the works are a byproduct of simply trusting in Christ. You guys, we get the cart before the horse. We want people to clean up their lives. We forget where we came from. God just wants... To do a work in people by simply bringing them to him, not putting them under more bondage. That's what false teachers do. That's the first characteristic. A second thing we see there in verse 20 is that they devour people. If one devours you, he says, the word could be translated praise upon. It's like an animal of prey. Like these hawks that you see flying around. They're all over out in Powell Butte where I live. You see them flying around. Are they just out enjoying the cool breeze? No, they're looking for little mice and rabbits and unsuspecting rodents. And they prey upon them. And that's what false teaching does. It's looking for the weak. Have you ever noticed that false teachers prey upon those that are already being drawn by the Lord? That's why they'll go to Billy Graham crusades and Harvest Crusades. And they'll stand out in the front as people are coming in and they'll hand out their literature and they'll go and put it on the windshields because they know these people are coming because they're being drawn by the Lord. They have a heart for God, at least in a sense. And then they hope that after they hear the gospel, that they'll call them thinking that this is a legitimate ministry. And then they wrap them in to their false teaching. And it's really sad. They prey upon people. Now, I'm not saying that all of these people that knock on doors and hand out literature and and are the poster children for these ministries are evil and bad and that they have sort of this insidious plan. Now, I think some at the top really do know what they're involved with and certainly those that started these organizations. But ultimately, these organizations are being empowered by our only enemy, and that's the devil. We're talking about Paul's enemies, and he recognized that that really these people were his enemy. They were coming against him so strongly. But in reality, he only had one enemy. And he would say that quite clearly in Ephesians chapter 6, that we battle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of darkness. That's who we're battling against. And so when they come to your door, they're not our enemy. We don't have to treat them horribly. We don't have to slam doors. You know, now if you choose not to open the door, that might not be so bad. I remember before I became a Christian when I was a kid, and they would come to the door, these different groups. My mom would say, hey, they're here, run and hide. You know, turn the TV off. It's like the last thing you want to hear, you know. You don't want to, Saturday, man, we got stuff to do. There's Games on TV, there's lawns to mow, there's fingernails to be pulled out of our fingers. We would much rather have that happen than to hear your spiel. And, and yet, as believers, we shouldn't be treating people badly. They're not our enemy, the devil's our enemy. Doesn't mean you have to, you know, listen to them or buy into their program, certainly, but. You can show them the love of Christ and, you know, um, and, and give them the hope that you have in Christ. And so they devour people. They prey upon people. It's also made clear here in verse 20 that they take from people. If one takes from you, he says, you don't even do anything about it. Because that's what false teaching does. It takes. It doesn't give. It just takes and it takes and it takes. It promises that it's going to give you something, but in reality it doesn't. It promises hope, but there's little hope. It promises assurance of salvation, but there isn't any unless you're doing what they tell you to do. It promises you a relationship with God, but it's on their terms. It promises you these things that we have in the Word of God, and yet they don't deliver. They just take. They just take your money. They take your time. They take your life. And take and take and take. And you know what? Again, it's sad when in the true church that's following Jesus, when I see the same thing. When I see churches that do believe in the right Jesus And do teach the right Bible. And do believe the right things. And yet they're all about taking as well. And it's just all about their program. Or the next building project. Or the thing that we need to do. And that becomes the focus of that ministry. How sad when it's about taking instead of giving. How sad when people are leaving a church thinking about what they need to do. Rather than what God has done. How sad when people are put under pressure to feel like they have to give, they have to be a part of that, they have to sign up or whatever. And it becomes backwards. It becomes about the ministry and the ministry becomes the taker rather than the giver. And I don't ever want to present ourselves that way. Now, do ministries need to receive? Absolutely. Are there needs? Certainly. I just don't want that to become the focal point. I don't want that to be what you're thinking about when you walk out the door. I don't want you to feel pressured. Because you see, you guys, when we just come to Jesus, which is what we need to be telling people, just come to Jesus. It's very easy to do, in fact. You don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be a scholar. Just tell them to come to Jesus. And if they're truly seeking the Lord, He'll take care of it. You know, I, I've found in, in some years of ministry that I don't have to chase people down. If God is truly drawing them and they're truly seeking the Lord, they'll want to be here. They'll want to be followed up upon. You don't have to call them a hundred times. You don't have to force, you know, the follow-up packet down their throat. They'll be there. They'll want it. They'll want to hear. They'll want to learn. They'll want to grow. And sometimes I wonder, people that supposedly come forward and supposedly give their life to the Lord, and then yet they don't come to church regularly, they're not reading their Bibles, sometimes I wonder, did they really get saved? Because I know for me, I wasn't seeking the Lord. And He found me. And He drew me to Himself. And I couldn't get enough of him after that. Nobody had to force me. I didn't have people calling me. I didn't have people checking up on me, really. I just knew that, man, I couldn't get enough. And so I often wonder, are we doing people a disservice by chasing them down and, you know, hey, sign up here and you got to do this and here's a program and here's this. And, you know, they'll get it if they want it. They'll find ways to figure it out. And it's very sad to me to see churches, to see ministries that just take from people rather than give. And you guys, my desire for our ministry is is that we would give. Is that we would be a place where people can come to receive. And then once they do that, once they come to Jesus... Which is that rabbit trail that I went off on, and now I just remembered where I was. When they come, I don't do that very often, but when they come to Jesus, then, then they'll want to give. Then they'll want to be a part of whatever ministry we're trying to make them to be a part of. It'll be an outflow of their own heart, it'll be a desire of their own heart see rather than getting it backwards when we truly see what God has done for us then we want to give back to him that's always the proper motivation we also see here that they exalt themselves a fourth characteristic of false teaching and false teachers they exalt themselves how true that is when you see these groups And it becomes about them. Their particular group. We are the only ones. We have the corner on the truth. It's about us. If you'll come to our church, I don't even like calling them that. But if you'll come to our assembly, then you'll really know what's going on. And it becomes about a man. It becomes about a movement. And again, you guys... In the regular, real church, this can happen. Where it becomes more about a man and more about a movement. And I'll tell you that in Calvary Chapel, we can be guilty of that. And I have tried to be very careful that I don't ever make Calvary Chapel the focal point. And talking about all that's going on and, you know, it's about us. And sometimes we can have this superiority complex like, we've got it. You know, we teach through the Bible. We're, you know, we got the corner on the truth. And it's so sad when I see that happening amongst colleagues in the ministry. And I don't think they do it purposely. They're, they're not truly believing that Calvary Chapel is, is the best or the only way. But it can come across and it can come across in assemblies of God or in the Nazarene or in Foursquare or the Baptist Church. It can come across because whatever we're a part of, we kind of naturally think, hey, that's that's the cool thing. That's the thing you ought to be a part of. And we have to be very careful that we push Jesus, that he's the focus of what we're doing. I mean, we do Sunfest every year right out in the park. We've actually had people come to us serious from other churches, from not even believers, and say, you know what, you guys aren't pushing your church enough. They're serious. You guys need to push Calvary Chapel more. And you know what, that's a compliment, I think. They're seriously telling us that we're doing something wrong, but I think in a sense it's a compliment. Because what they're saying is is that we came here and we had a good time and we heard about Jesus, but we didn't get Calvary Chapel pushed down our throat. I don't think that's a bad thing. Now, does that mean that we don't talk about our church at all? We don't let people know? No, I mean, that would be silly. But we don't ever want to make our movement, our particular group, the focus. Jesus needs to be the focus. But not in these false movements. Not among false teachers. They become the focus. They exalt themselves. And then also, finally, at the end of verse 20, we see that they hurt people. If one strikes you on the face, this, of course, would sort of be a metaphor for absolutely disgracing somebody. Just slapping them across the face. In that culture and in that society, that was just a way of disdaining somebody. I think we can relate to that. And that's what false teaching does. It just hurts people. It puts people down. It diminishes what God wants to do in somebody's life. And ultimately, it destroys them. Paul goes on to talk about his qualifications. And again, he didn't want to have to do this, but he felt it necessary. And it, he lists his qualifications here for us in verses 22 through 29. But his list... His qualifications, you guys, is very different from a list that we might compile. If we were asked to put together a resume or put together a list of our qualifications, it would probably look a lot different than this. We would talk about our education. We would talk about our accomplishments. We would talk about the people we know, where we've been, what we've done our reputation. We would talk about our successes. Maybe we would boast about how much money we have in the bank. These are things that we like to boast about. But Paul puts together a list that's quite different. First of all, he talks about his pedigree. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I talks about his pedigree. Now, we don't relate to this very well. This doesn't resonate in our society because we're Americans. We don't have a clue where we're from. My wife, she likes to brag about the fact that she's 50% Italian, actually Sicilian. They're, they're like the redneck Italians, but don't tell her that. But she likes to boast about that. Trust me. I'm around her family a lot, and uh, they're great people. But, you know, Sicilians, I mean, they are just the loudest people on the planet. And they've never even been to Sicily, but they act just like them. I don't know how that works, but she is proud of the fact that she's 50% Sicilian. 50% back in the day, a couple hundred years ago, that made you a half-breed. But now now we're proud of that. We're proud of the fact that we can point to 50% of something. Now, me, I have no clue. I know that I've got some Irish, and I know I have American Indian. In the first service, I said feather, not dot. Indian, you know. Um, we met the Mayflower, by the way. Everybody's proud. My ancestors were on the Mayflower. Well, my ancestors met the Mayflower when it got here.
1: <laughs> but
0: I have no clue. I have no clue who I am, where I'm from. Sometimes I wonder where I'm going, but we don't in our society resonate with that real well. It's just, you know, hey, we're European about the extent of it. And in that culture, it was a big deal. It meant a lot. And Paul was saying, I am a Jew amongst Jews, purebred. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm an Israelite. I'm the seed of Abraham and his pedigree could not be taught. So he's just making that very clear. Are they saying that they are this to you? Well, I don't want to boast, but so am I. I've got quite the pedigree if that's where you want to go. Then he goes on to talk about his purpose. His purpose was simply to minister to people. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. What is a minister? Again, in our society, a minister is one who's become elevated above the people. When I go to do hospital visits or to do a funeral, people ask me, are you the minister? As if that's some lofty title, the word just means a servant. In fact, it meant an under rower. It was the the people at the bottom of the boat that would be rowing. That was what a servant. That was what a minister was in in the Greek language, from which we translate the word diakonos to, to be minister, but it's just a servant. And so Paul talks about his purpose. My purpose was to minister to people. These false teachers, they came to be ministered to. They came to be served. Jesus set the example for Paul as he would say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And Paul is simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. And you guys, that is the legacy that we've been left. The legacy of a servant. The legacy of a minister. And that was Paul's purpose. Then he talks about his persecution at the end of verse 23, all the way down to verse 27. He talks about All the things that he's been through. And you guys, this would not normally make a resume. All his trials. All his persecutions. And they are amazing. In a general sense, he says, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Who can say this? In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. I mean, a few weeks ago, I got my hair cut by a man. I won't say where, because you would never go there again. Maybe that would be a good thing. But if you want to ask me privately, I'll tell you. And I would recommend not going there. But it was in town here and I'm getting my hair cut and and the guy is just shooting the breeze like they do, you know, hey, how many kids you got? And just all nice. And then he starts to ask me about the war. I thought, oh, this is a trap, you know, and so he, he said, well, first he asked me, what do I do? And I told him I was a pastor at Calvary Chapel. Oh, great. We need more good leadership, you know, and we need people to, to to really represent God. And, you know, he's cutting my hair and, you know, he's got razors and scissors. And he said, what do you think about the war? I said, well, you know, honestly, I think that it, it has kind of turned into a mess over there. And I, I don't envy President Bush and it's a real tough situation, but I said, you know, I really do think that Saddam Hussein was a was an evil man. He was a terrorist, and and the fact that he's gone is is a better thing for the world. And you know, there was like a pause, and then he just like lit into me like a like a ravenous dog, and and he's still cutting my hair, you know. And it was this surreal moment where I realized this guy is, you know is doing something for me with weapons. (laughs) But he's calling me every name in the book. And I'm not lying. I mean, just chewed me up one side and down the other. Every name you can think of. He said, you ought to shut that church down of yours with a few expletives along with it. You know, and I, you know me, I'm I'm a little sarcastic. (laughs) And so I said to him, I said, boy, you really do know how to build a business, don't you? And uh, he said, let me tell you something. I'll be here a lot longer than you will be. Said, yeah, you might be. But you might be standing here doing nothing, along, you know. It, it just was amazing. And I wanted to say a lot of things to him. And I finally realized, look, this is going nowhere. As I was just trying to share my heart with him. and So I, you know, I got up. I thought, you know, I don't even have to pay you. I could just walk out. I mean, are you going to call the police? I'll tell them that you, you know, verbally assaulted me. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to pay this guy. So I paid him. And then then I said, you know what, man? I said, I just want to let you know Jesus loves you and, and so do I. It's probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to say. I didn't want to say it, but I felt like I needed to. And he goes, yeah, whatever. Get that religious garbage out of here. You know, and just I was like, all right, see ya. And I just walked out. But I, I walked away, felt, hey man, I'm like the Apostle Paul. I got persecuted today. You know, but look at this list. In order for me to have been like the Apostle Paul, he would have had to jam those scissors into one of my eyeballs. All I got was a bad haircut. And I felt Persecuted. But you read this list, and it's like, my goodness. And I read it, and I think, Paul, wouldn't you have thought that maybe you chose the wrong career path? I mean, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times. We've seen the passion. You saw what Jesus went through. And the law in Deuteronomy, it said that, Forty lashes, the scourging, was the most severe punishment that a Jew could receive. And what they did was they subtracted it by one, and they said 39 lashings. Because they had written into the law that if you went beyond, if you exceeded as the one inflicting the lashes... If you exceeded the 40, like if you lost count, you know, around 38 and you're like, ah, ah the heck with it, you know, and just kept going, you would receive the same punishment. So they didn't want to have to endure that. So what they did was they said, we won't go beyond 39. And they made sure they didn't. 39 lashes, five times Paul received that. We saw what Jesus went through. Paul went through that five times times. I think after the first time I would have went and hid and I would have retired. Lord, obviously, this isn't what you called me to do. I mean, think about if we go on a mission trip. What if you showed up down there in Mexico, you pull up in your car and they just start throwing rocks at you. They slash your tires. They steal your stuff. Lord, you must not have called me here. We're going home. But Paul went through all that and even more. He was stoned. We read about that in the book of Acts. Three times he was shipwrecked. And that doesn't include the story in the book of Acts because that came after this. Four times Paul was shipwrecked. The Jews were not seafaring people. It's made very clear. That's why the Bible says that God has cast our sins into the depths of the sea because he knew that the Jewish mind Would never go there. That would be like the forbidden place. You never dive down into the water. That's why the disciples were so fearful on the Sea of Galilee. We picture this huge, monstrous Pacific Ocean, you know, with waves just huge. The Sea of Galilee is like Ochoco Reservoir. It's not a huge body of water. These guys were terrified. You could probably swim to the beach. They were afraid of the water. They were fishermen, yes, but seafaring, no. And they would stay very close to the shore. That's why when Jesus had, go, had them going across the water, they weren't real thrilled with that. They just like to stay close. And if you go to Israel, you'll see the boats out there. And they're only like 50 to 100 yards off the shore. They just comb the, the coastline for the fish. So they're not seafaring people. And you can imagine the trepidation that Paul would have been experiencing as he boarded these ships time and again to go off to these faraway places. Some of you are afraid of flying. And let's just for a moment think that you could survive a plane crash. And you're going on a missions trip and you get in a plane crash. Do you think you're going to board another plane? Probably not. Paul did that time and again. Out in the night, in the day, he was in the deep. Have you ever been in the water at night? It's creepy, especially the ocean. I don't like being in the ocean, period, really, uh, you know, with all these shark attacks. Do You know, they see great whites like all, all the way up here in Oregon now. I mean, they're not just warm water species anymore. You've got to be careful. It's a crazy world out there. But a night and a day in the deep, floating on boards, you know, it's not not real fun. And then he talks about being robbed because they would, you know, make their journeys by foot, by camel, if they were lucky, and they would get robbed all the time because they weren't going 70 miles an hour. It was like back in the Old West, you know, how the bandits would rob the stagecoaches all the time. It was real easy to do, you know, just surround it. It's pretty hard to do when you're going 70 miles an hour. But it was easy back then. And, you know, here's Paul making his way to the next town. He gets robbed. That happened time and again. And these are the things that Paul lists as his qualifications for ministry. And we're going to talk about, as we get into his boast, why those were qualifications. Why he considered that to be above and beyond anything else, his validation for ministry. All these other men and women, these false teachers, they would have quit. Paul said, I kept going. That substantiates and validates my ministry. We also see, as Paul lists his qualifications, we see his pastor's heart in verses 28 and 29. Besides the other things, What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul lists all these things. Then he says, and besides that, my deep concern for you. As Paul is being beaten, as Paul is being imprisoned, as Paul is being robbed, as Paul is floating on boards in the middle of the night in the ocean. What's he thinking about? Others. His deep concern for all the churches. You guys, that blows me away. That was Paul's pastor's heart. These false teachers did not have that kind of heart. But Paul did. And he said, that validates my ministry. I may not be impressive to look at. I may not be eloquent in speech. My eyes may be failing. I may have a crooked back and be hunched over and all gnarly. But I love you guys. That was Paul's validation. Well, then he goes on. The third thing we want to look at is his boasting. Verses 30 through 33. He says, if I must boast, if I'm going to do this, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. That's what Paul was going to boast in. That's why he listed those things. Those were the things that he boasted about as we will talk about next week as we get into chapter 12, it's because in that is how we glorify Christ. Because the things that are difficult, the challenges in our life, the weaknesses in our life, they are what keep us humble. And when we embrace those things... When we acknowledge those things and we allow God to work through those things, then He's glorified. And people look at you and they go, Man, I can't believe what is going on through that person. That's got to be the Lord. That's got to be Jesus. He must be real. When they see this weak vessel, like Paul, All these things that he went through and yet God was using him powerfully. When people see that, they glorify God and not you. They glorify the master instead of the instrument. You guys, that's why God puts trials and difficulties into our life to keep us grounded, to keep us humble. And Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I will boast in the things regarding my infirmities. As people, it's our tendency to boast in other things, the things we talked about. But that wasn't what Paul boasted in. And you guys, as people that follow Jesus, we should be boasting in our weaknesses. By acknowledging and embracing them, they become opportunities for Jesus to shine through us. Instead of complaining about them, we should embrace them. Instead of complaining about the weaknesses in your life, Embrace them and allow them to be a catalyst for God to work through you. Because what does God use? The weak and the foolish things of this world. And so the weaker you are, the more opportunity you have for Jesus to work through you. And then people look at you and they'll go, that's got to be God. And that's what the Lord wants. Paul says, I boast in nothing except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That was his boast. Paul had a lot of things he could boast about. But God brought these weaknesses into his life so that he would boast in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And just in case Paul was tempted to boast in himself, as he says in that same passage about that he boasted in nothing but Jesus, he goes on to say, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That's what kept him grounded. That's what kept him humble. Now, you guys, when we talk about boasting in our weaknesses, I'm not talking about sin. We shouldn't be boasting in our sin. We should be ashamed of that. We should be boasting, however, in those things by which God can be glorified. Through our life. That's what our boast should be. It's very easy for us to talk about ourselves, to boast about ourselves, to name drop, to want to impress people. And sometimes we even do it like with the backdoor approach. Some of us are really adept at that, where we kind of put ourselves down in hopes that somebody will then say, oh, no, no, you You shouldn't say that. You're so great. You're awesome. Why would you say that about yourself? And and we we want that. And that's why we, we throw that out there. That's kind of our lure in hopes that we'll get a little positive feedback. Paul's boast was in his weaknesses. And he even puts an oath on that in verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. He he says, look, I'm even willing to, to make this an oath. The Lord knows that I'm not lying about this. This is what I boast in. And then he illustrates it by going all the way back to the beginning of his ministry there in Damascus. As he was Making his way to do what? To kill Christians. To throw them into prison. On his way to Damascus, what happened? He saw a great light. He was knocked to the ground by Jesus. And Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You've kicked against me long enough. It's time for you to submit your life to me. I'm calling you into ministry. Go. That's simple. And there was Paul in Damascus. Because his, his friends who were traveling with him brought him into Damascus. Paul had scales over his eyes. He was just absolutely, I'm sure, in shock of what had happened. And then the Lord sent a man to come and to minister to him and to encourage him. To go and do what God had called him to do. And Paul went and did that. And what happened? Immediately he was persecuted in Damascus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. Persecuted to the point that they had to lower him through a hole in the wall in the middle of the night. In a basket. That was Paul's beginnings in ministry. From the very beginning I've been persecuted and it just kept going. And that's what all boasts boast in, Paul says. What's our boast in, you guys? I hope it's in Jesus and in Him alone. It should be in our weaknesses because He's made strong through our weaknesses. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, I thank You for this time in Your Word. God, I thank You for...